We are starting the show, though, talking about something that's happening with North Shore Rescue. So we call these time-compressed calls. Uh, as you saw, it's, it's getting dark. The, the helicopters can fly at twilight, but they can't. these ones can't fly at night. Our machine with night vision goggles is away fighting forest fires, so we're without our, our, our machine for hoist and for, for night ops. So that makes this very time compressed, and we were in a hurry, and luckily we got them out on time. That was Alec Ritchie, a North Shore Rescue team member, speaking with Global News about a rescue that took place. As you heard him say, though, one particular helicopter is not in BC. Well, joining us to talk a bit more about this is Mike Danks, North Shore Rescue team leader. Mike, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. I just got to put one plug in for your intro. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. (laughs) One vote to keep the intro. We will uh, note that for sure. Um, uh, Mike, thanks for doing this. We heard that bit from Alec Ritchie, who was talking with Global News about that rescue that took place. And as he said, luckily, everything was fine, but it was quite time compressed. So can you tell us a bit about why the night vision chopper isn't here in B.C.? Yeah, and again, this is a a real challenge for us because it's one of our primary tools that we use. And um, the Alberta Forest Service has um, put that that helicopter on a contract for a hundred days, so it's going to be fighting wildfires in Alberta because it can do that at night um, with a belly tank that it has, which is unfortunate for us. Um, it's a it's a real bonus for them. And, and is that normal that Alberta would contract out or that they would come to BC to contract one of these one of these helicopters? Well, I just I don't think it's a, a common aircraft that's available to fly at night uh, that has a belly tank. So I think they took advantage of that, um, which unfortunately for us, I mean, we were on a pilot with that aircraft um, conducting rescues. Um, it's definitely saved many lives. So it's really changed the way that we're going to be able to operate now because we're back um, to only being able to fly at night now, or sorry, in the daylight. And so who owns this helicopter? It's owned by Talon Helicopters. And again, if, if we look at it from the air carrier's perspective, this is a very lucrative opportunity for them. So, you know, we have a great relationship with Talon. We understand why they've done what they've done. Um, our hope, though, is is that somehow um, in the future we would be able to keep that aircraft in town. Right. So, would that be a matter of then? It's it's the Alberta government. I'm I'm gathering that that you said has has contracted the helicopter. That's right. Yeah. So, is it a matter of the BC government didn't try and and keep it here, or the BC government would have to step up and offer it a better deal, or offer Talon a better deal? Yeah, I think that's really what it comes down to. I mean, there needs to be an incentive for air carriers uh, to keep the helicopters in town to be available. Um, Certainly the wildfire season offers um, pretty lucrative opportunities for aircraft. So it is a bit of a tricky situation. I think if you look at the call volume increase that we've seen locally here on the North Shore and then regionally um, that we've responded to with that night vision helicopter, there's definitely uh, a business case. I'm not sure what what value we, you would place on a life, but it's certainly made the difference for a number of people that we've responded to. Right, and I know we talked about the fact when North Shore Rescue actually got the capability to go ahead with the night flights and the night vision chopper. How long have you been doing that? Yeah, we've been in operation for about, uh, I think it's been November of last year. 
Um, and in that short period of time, again, we've responded um, not only on the North Shore, but onto, into Vancouver Island up to Rosalind. Um, so it's been a regional asset that's been definitely utilized. And so what does this mean for BC then? And, and I think people too, like you said, they'll understand that, that Talon was given a very lucrative offer from the Alberta government. Uh, they're dealing with uh, fires in Alberta. They're dealing with things that that helicopter can be put to use. But does that potentially mean that we could, going into the next hundred days, if we have rescues that happen or people getting lost that need to be rescued at night, or if we need wildfires, that that, that helicopter could be sitting in Alberta if it's not being used at the time when it could very much be needed here? Yeah, no, I think that's a very accurate statement. And um, I think last night's call really highlights that because, you know, our crew did everything they could to respond within an hour to get um, that individual evacuated off the mountain. He was in a very precarious situation. Um, And a ground response was not ideal because the avalanche conditions were not favorable to putting people in the field. So again, it, it, it really limits what we can do when we don't have that machine available and will it have an impact on our operations? Absolutely. It will. And is it also a message to people and not that anybody goes and gets lost or puts themselves in a dangerous situation where they need to be rescued on purpose, but we have talked so much about this, and it was such a, a big deal when North Shore Rescue got the night vision chopper. Do you think now there could potentially be a false sense of security and that people go out hiking and they go out enjoying uh, the, the great outdoors on the North Shore, thinking that they could be rescued at any time when now they can't? Yeah, absolutely. I think people have become very attuned to the service that we provide um, here on the North Shore. I mean, not only do you potentially have an aircraft that can fly at night, but it will come with a doctor as well. But uh, that service is not going to be available. So people definitely need to um, pivot. They need to adjust uh, on the hike that they're going to do. And I know that people don't go out planning to get injured, but I think you really need to think twice now um, on how far you're going to be going and and what your self-rescue technique is going to be. What happens at the end of the 100 days, at the end of this contract? Yeah, so that machine will come back to Vancouver and hopefully it will stay in town. I mean, that's definitely our goal. But um, I can I can see if Alberta has a busy wildfire season that they could potentially keep that aircraft um, there in, the, in Alberta. So. Right, there would yeah. be there would be nothing stopping them if they wanted to uh, from renewing the contract. Yeah, nothing at all. And unfortunately, we just don't have the funds in place to to pay for an aircraft like that to be on minimums, let alone any aircraft, to put that way. (laughs) Is is there only one of these particular night vision choppers or, or like you said, the ones that can also fight forest fires at night? Yeah, yeah. I think the Dolphin's a pretty unique aircraft because it does have a belly tank on it and it has night vision capability. So it allows them to really get a handle on these fires at night when they're at their calmest. Is it something too that, is it a specialized uh, helicopter as far as the pilots and, and does it, are only certain people able to pilot them? Yeah. I mean, each pilot has a certification for each aircraft that they're on. Um, but again, I mean, I think for us, the, the big point here is, you know, it's, it's really kind of, set us back a few years in our response and people just need to to be aware of that i think 
All right. And aware that. So it's kind of going back to how it was before then, because, I mean, every year you, uh, I know, respond to more rescues that happen as the days get longer and the, the weather starts to get a bit warmer. But it sounds like we could potentially start hearing about more cases of people that will have to hunker down. You'll have to put rescuers into <laughs> the area with them to keep them as well as they can until the morning light. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And that's one of the considerations now when we're going into a call with diminishing daylight is we might just be dropping equipment to that person. Um, and yeah, they're just going to need to to hold tight for the night. And if things are really going sideways, if they're critically injured, well, the call will go to the military at that point if they're available. All right. Well, Mike, thanks for joining us uh, to update us on this. Appreciate your time. We'll leave it there, but thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for your time, too. You take care. It is Wednesday. That means it is time to check in with Claire Newell. Claire, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Jill. And, you know, of all the segments I've done probably over the past few months, I have to tell you that the deals at the end are my favorite that I've seen in a long time. So we'll wait for that. But yeah, um, some big news, of course, with the um, U.S. dropping the vaccine mandate for air travelers as of May the 11th. And I've had lots of questions about this. I mean, the news dropped of it and that um, the U.S. has said, you know, they'll no longer require air travelers to be vaccinated as of May 1st, though the mandate will still be in place for non-citizens at U.S. land crossings and that we can expect further information on that. Um, Maybe I'm not up to date, but is that what you have heard too? I'd heard that the air travel was was going to be dropped. Yeah. I didn't realize it was still at land cross. So technically, uh, is it still in place? I didn't realize it was even still in place. Yes. So um, it doesn't make sense to me that they are dropping it at they aren't dropping it at the same time. But we'll wait to see on that. So I had you know, our general manager, I've had a whole bunch of different people look at it and just 10 ways to Sunday. And at this stage, it just appears that we're waiting for information about the land crossing. So as soon as I hear that, I will keep you posted. All right. But as far as so the air travel, though, May 11th, so just a few days from now, that one will be gone. Yeah, it's hard to believe that U.S. was be the holder yeah. to the standout, right? But um, they have like worldwide, they are the they've been kind of holding on to this mandate longer than anyone else out there. Yeah, I think uh, people might be surprised to even learn that it's still in place. So uh, (laughs) that one will be gone soon. Uh, Let's see what else is going on. If you're somebody who uses Uber and Aeroplan, there's a new partnership there. Yeah, so this is with Uber Eats. So let me tell you, my son who was at university, man, do I ever wish he was using our Aeroplan visa for that because I saw so many Uber Eats charges. So um, good news if you are a fan of that because starting May the 3rd, which is today, um, Aeroplan members are going to earn one Aeroplan point per $1 spent on eligible orders in the grocery and retail sections of that Uber Eats app. And there's no minimum spend required. So if you really want something little and just have it delivered to your door, you can. Um, it's just another way. It just provides a new way for um, Aeroplan points to be earned with national and regional grocers and retailers. So I think that's great news. Any way you can get points, get them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As long as you're, yes, if you're already signed up, then why not get as many points as you can? Uh, also, a big milestone for Cathay Pacific. Yeah, this happened on May the 2nd, and it was a really major milestone, not only for Cathay Pacific in the Americas, but as um, 
in history as one of the world's leading airlines. So 40 years ago, as of May 2nd, they had a flight, which was Cathay Pacific CX-800, and it departed Hong Kong to touch down in Vancouver for the very first time. But it was that nonstop service between Hong Kong and YVR that not only represented the airline's first entry into North America, but it also saw Cathay Pacific become the first airline in the world to connect Hong Kong and Vancouver with a nonstop service. Hmm, what a milestone indeed. That's yeah. uh, amazing to look back at that. Uh, let's talk a little bit as well. This story has been in the news. The deal reached not for all of the federal workers, but 120,000 of them. What does that mean? Because you and I talked about dis- uh, delays for passports. What does that mean, do you think? Well, Service Canada came out saying that they we can expect longer lineups and we can't expect delays in service as the passport offices catch up. During the almost two-week period, they didn't get as many as they normally do. They got about 81% fewer passport applications during that time period. But what that means is that anyone who's kind of waiting, they're waiting till now to do it. So, you know, while um, they catch up from that, just expect longer processing times. Right now, the norm, like if there wasn't this in place, they're saying 10-day service if you go and drop it off at a passport center or a Services Canada center. 20 business days if the applications are dropped off at a regular, like, or received by mail or um, at a regular Service Canada center, not the ones that specialize in passports. So just keep that in mind. You probably will add a few business days to that. And so if you're planning to do it and you have a trip planned, get it in as soon as possible. All right. That is good advice as well. Let's talk about, I saw this story earlier in the week. Well, not too, too long ago. We're only at Wednesday, but uh, WestJet, it feels like it's been a long week. WestJet completing the acquisition of Sunwing. Yeah. So this happened, uh, it was actually announced on Monday, May the 1st, that WestJet had completed the whole acquisition of both Sunwing Vacations and Sunwing Airlines. This has been in the the works for 13 months. I mean, since March of last year, and it was approved just in March of this year, and they were putting everything together. It does make me a little nervous that these two leisure carriers that go to a lot of the same destinations, especially when it comes to sun, are kind of becoming one and merging. They are supposed to be, um, they're going to be working independently for a little while, but at the end of the day, same company. And so we'll have to see what happens. There are 16 major markets that are going to be affected and really taking out a competitor, which ultimately means higher prices for us as Canadians. So we'll really have to watch this and see what happens um, effective May 1st, right? So we'll see. That was my question. What will it mean for prices for people traveling? But not great news that they're going to go up. Yeah, I'm going to watch this like an absolute hawk. So if you uh, if you hear from me again, mm-hmm. um, complaining about what's happening, uh Yeah, Uh, as as soon as I see anything, I'll let you know. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, Keeping with WestJet as well, uh, they have some new flights that they're operating. Yeah, one of them, um, it was a milestone because on Sunday, which was April the 30th, just this past Sunday, they celebrated landing in Asia for the first time. So it was a flight that went from Calgary and flew to Tokyo's Narita Airport. And WestJet's first ever flight to Asia. So I think that this is a growth market for them. And obviously for, for people who love WestJet and are, are, you know, I guess 
loyalty holders or, uh, or earn points with them. You could e even do a quick hopper flight over from Vancouver to Calgary and then do that long haul nonstop, get some sleep if you could sleep on a plane. Um, and it would be, it's a great way to get to Tokyo. There are, there are other options, but what this means for Western Canadians is that there, because there's another flight, may not be from Vancouver, but quite close, it may mean that prices drop and they have been really expensive to head to Asia lately. So this is good news for us. And Asia too. And I know Japan on this list as far as removing the final COVID travel restrictions and that a lot of countries that, that we are seeing it. I think we, we've forgotten that there are still countries that, that do have some of those still in place. Yeah, that's right. But um, there's some data that came out from trip.com trip that I was uh, looking at. And Asia the whole Asia Pacific region is really expecting a major rebound this year. According to that data, the volume of inbound travelers is expected to grow throughout 2023 and 2024, but rising by 94% compared to the previous year. Obviously, with restrictions down, Jill, that makes sense. Um, but as far as what are the popular destinations, Japan for sure. South Korea and Hong Kong, which is really kind of it had dropped off quite a bit, but it's coming back and it all of these areas will come back as we get more flights going to that to that area and the prices start to drop. So people can think about it again as maybe going and seeing Tokyo or seeing Hong Kong um, or seeing Seoul and then going and doing the popular places that used to be, which were Thailand, Vietnam, Cambodia, uh, Bali, Indonesia. So uh, we'll wait to see that. But we're expecting a lot more of those types of packages coming into the marketplace and, and coming quite soon, actually. And that would make a lot of sense because vacation deprivation clearly is a big thing for a lot of people. Oh, for sure. Expedia actually just released its latest vacation deprivation report. And it says that global vacation deprivation levels have reached a 10-year high. Obviously, working adults are navigating all sorts of things right now. Inflation, labor shortages, busy schedules. Um, but it's still a massive priority for people. 81% of travelers worldwide plan to take as many, if not more, trips in 2023. And pledging to travel no matter what. I, I'm one of them. <laughs> but it's uh, it was a really interesting report. But you can see why, um, you know, people are busy. And most, especially in the travel industry and the tourism industries, and, and if you work in retail or, or hospitality, there are labor shortages all over the place. And people are expected to do a lot more. And taking time off is a lot harder. But I am a firm believer that you are much more productive if you get your vacations and you use all of them. Yeah, take time to recharge the batteries. And maybe if you liked going to places, uh, then um, by all means, get to strike those names off the list. Uh, absolutely. One of the interesting um, numbers that kind of stood out to me was that uh, a lot of people, 79% of Canadians especially, are seeking less crowded destinations. So that was interesting. So maybe places that are a little bit more off the beaten path, maybe that uh, are more sustainable, maybe that are helping the local economies. So um, that was, uh, I'm going to kind of drill down into that data a little bit more, but that number kind of flew off the page to me. 
Yeah, interesting indeed. All right, well, you you build this as the segment with the <laughs> best deals that we've ever seen. So, what deals do you have for us? So they're not just the best. They're not the best deals. They're just some of them are so new because uh, first of all, Nashville, Tennessee, they we've got a new nonstop service, and so I put together a, a package that's available July 31st through until October the 16th. The cheapest dates are at the beginning, July 31st through until the end of August. But airfare, which has never been easy to get to, it's always been a stop. And I think the shortest that I have ever flown to Nashville was nine hours with the connection. So this is a nonstop flight with four nights hotel. It's a nice hotel. It's the Sheraton Grand. And it's at 919 taxes of 390. And despite the fact that there were no nonstops, this has become a hotspot for like bachelorette and mm. bachelor parties. So um, if you love country music, it might be fun to do. The next one is um, a Greek seaside escape. It's actually in Attica, which is about 25, 30 minutes drive from Athens, June 8th through until October 13th. So if you thought about doing uh, a getaway this summer to Europe, but you were thinking, I don't want to plan it, it's too expensive, check this deal out. It's airfare, seven nights in a four-star beachfront resort. It comes with three meals a day and the beverages during the meals. So it's not like an all-inclusive where you have snacks and drinks whenever you want, but during meals, you do get your beverages and the airport transfers are included. So kind of like a, like a mini all-inclusive, $14.79, taxes of eight fourteen. So mm. that is an awesome deal for a Greek seaside escape. And then the final one is a nine-night cruise that does Japan and Hokkaido. So it's leaving on September the 20th, and it's got an amazing itinerary. I'll leave it to people to go online to, to check out the itinerary, but it does sail round trip from Tokyo, $9.99, the taxes of $2.16. So a really great way to see Japan if it's on your bucket list, not have to do the planes, trains, and automobiles in between. Yeah, wow. Those uh, all sound uh, absolutely wonderful. Claire, thank you for this and bringing Thanks, us Jill. these updates. We will talk to you again soon. Talk to you soon. Bye. Earlier this week, we talked about the evacuation of a Vancouver Island apartment building and the fact that residents for the second time had been told or were told that they needed to evacuate, that there were concerns with the stu structural integrity of that building. And that is continuing with residents given very little time to grab what they could and get away from the area. Well, things have gotten even worse with two neighboring businesses now saying they have have also been told to evacuate because there are concerns that building could collapse. Joining the show now is Maureen McNeil, manager of Our Lady of the Rosary Preschool and Daycare. Maureen, thank you so much for being here. Hi. Yes, um, we had to, um, to, to evacuate as well. Um, and, we, and I was not able to give my parents very much notice. So um, it was in the evening of last Wednesday. And um, they just told us that um, the city's structural engineers needed to do more more work to to see whether the building would fall um, around or within itself, and and if it would just fall within itself, then it would have been no problem. So hmm. we're just waiting to hear. Uh, so what was that like though when when you first heard and knew that the residents of this building had been told they had to get out of the building? Did you have any concerns being that your business is so close to it? I uh, I really never because it has happened before. 
Mm-hmm. Um, they just came and, and said that they advised us. Um, they just wanted to t- tell us the, the, the worry. And, um, and if we were not worried, then we could stay. Like it wasn't a, a definite um, evacuation for us. Right. So, um, so I just thought that might happen again. Yeah, to be on alert or to know what, what's on going alert. on. Uh, because exactly. it, does it seem strange to you that, that the first time you were, like you said, you were told this is happening, but you don't need to evacuate, whereas now clearly there's been some other information found or something discovered about the building that they're, they're so concerned it might collapse that you and the other business have been told to leave. That's right. Yes, we 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 were just, um, you know, we just have to do what we have to do. And when it's the city of Langford telling us that um, they are very concerned because um, of their engineers, um, you know, I guess there was more. I'm thinking there were there was more um, structural um, problems that they didn't see before mm. that that made it worse. And um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I guess they just saw something that. That made us. Uh, they made them feel like everybody needed to to, to leave. So, so St. Vincent de Paul, um, us, and our office had to, to to evacuate very quickly. And you mentioned that you didn't have enough time to alert the parents. And as I mentioned, so you are the manager of a preschool and daycare. Mm-hmm. Where did you go? Well, we. I just alerted them that night to to tell them this is for sure. I mean, I. As they were coming in that evening, I knew um, that we were told that that as soon as possible we should leave. Um, and I thought that maybe we could have just stuck it out for the the next couple of days till the end of the week. But um, I was told, nope, you have to leave now. Um, you know, um, you can't go back uh, the next day. So this was just towards the end of the day that I I learned of this. So. Um, Yes, um, we just, you know, it's just what we had to do. <laughs> and but um, yeah, where did everyone go though? As far as I, I know, I would imagine even uh, well in Vancouver Island, everywhere there's always such a, a shortage of daycare spaces and and places for parents uh, looking for childcare. Do you know where people have gone? Most of my parents have not found a place. It is very hard. The same, it's very difficult to to actually find anywhere for daycare. And I, I, we've been really trying very hard to, to figure out something else, an alternative, a place to, to have these children. And we're hoping that um, something will come up that we can place them in. So I'm working along with um, VIHA, and um, I think everyone is, is looking out and have, has their feelers out um, where we can, we can go to. We just haven't found the, the exact place yet. And uh, I mean, it makes sense as well. Nobody would like to see uh, anybody be hurt. And, and this is probably being done out of an abundance of caution. But t- did they give you any indication or any idea on when or if you'll be able to return to that building? Well, this is it. We were we were told that possibly um, it was just Thursday and Friday, but now there's just no timeline. So we're we're just hoping that they will be able to to we we should be able to hear something soon, hopefully um, at how really dangerous this is. Where the safety, you know, um, won't be a. We're hoping to hear that there's no safety, there's not a problem, and and the children can can return to the daycare. So that is my hope, and so is you know, I've um, my parents are really hoping for that too. 
that that it, the structure is not going to um, worry any surrounding areas. So, right. So, so they yeah. had originally said it would maybe just a, a couple of days that that you could prote- potentially go back on Thursday or Friday, or, or were they telling you that no, there would be no. an update? No, they said for sure Thursday and Friday. Huh. That's when they're going to be doing the assessment. So, mm, okay. I'm, I, I think it takes a lot to um, to really. Um, you know, make sure that that this is a this is not going to be a safety issue for us. So, um, so they have been taking a long time, but I, you know, they have to do what they have to do. Um, you know, when it when it comes to safety, you just have to, you know, just hang in there. But it's too bad, you know, because we've been there for so long, and we're almost at the end of our term there, and it, it's just too bad that we couldn't continue just until then. How long but, have you been there? Um, 13 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, um, yeah, and, and, and we are, you know, um, Royal Roads University is going to be taking over the site. Um, so they're, you know, we're going to be out of there by the end of June anyways. So it's just too bad that we couldn't just finish that off. Right. Did they give you any indication? I guess they'd have to do the assessment first, but has anyone talked about with this now being the second evacuation of this building? Did, did you get the impression or has anyone talked about, does it need to come down? I have, I have no idea on that. I, I don't know. Nobody has discussed that at all. So, right. All right. I'm, um, I'm just, I'm I just, think, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, I, I, I think they're more worried right now at the moment um, about, a, you know, we could have an earthquake at any time and it could be a, a bad one um and in that case you know that that's our worry um you know i don't think it's going to fall over you know I, my feeling is that if we did have an earthquake we would do all do the earthquake thing and you know evacuate completely quickly in, in minutes in seconds and um and you know we would be out of harm's way but um you know definitely for the people that were living there it's they are sleeping, so it could happen in the night or any time. So, right. but um, I would think that if it's that bad, that they're going to want to take it down. But that's my feeling. Um, I I can't say speak for them. Well, it's uh, um, we will continue to follow along, and like you said, hopefully uh, getting a bit more information when they do more of the assessment. Maureen, thank you so much for talking to us today about this. Appreciate your time. Oh, no worries. Thank you. <laughs> Have right. a good day. Thanks. You too. Okay. Well, a new study was just released earlier today points to some issues with the contractor for TransLink's HandyDart, saying that it is failing to meet the demand. And joining me now is Eric Doherty, the report author. Eric, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me on. This is a study, again, coming out this week. What were you looking at specifically when it comes to HandyDart and meeting the needs of people that use HandyDart? Yeah, we were looking at um, particularly whether HandyDart was keeping up with the demand with the aging and growing population and found that um, it's not. Uh, it's only a service for senior that it had in 2008. And um, we're looking at a, a situation where that is because the, the private contractor can't employ, um, attract and retain uh, workers. And sorry, Eric, your phone cut out there a little bit. When you said, sorry, seniors from 2008, were, were you saying there's been a, a big difference in the, in the amount of the need demand for service? Yeah, um, that, they, uh, that the, um, 
the need is there. The need is coming back after the, the situation with COVID. But the private contractor just can't provide the service because they don't pay well enough and uh, the working conditions aren't good enough to attract workers. Uh, I so, remember, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so it's just a, it's a situation where, um, you know, TransLink has um, created a, a situation where they, they can't meet um, their own objectives. Uh, I remember talking about this several years ago and, and covering this as well. And I, I think at that time it was a different contractor. It might not have been, but there were a lot of the same concerns, even before, like you said, the demand for this has, has come back and has grown. Uh, so is this something that, that we've seen happening, not only in the time frame that you looked at, but that, that has really been an ongoing concern? Yeah, it's been an ongoing concern for, for decades. Uh, that um, the, the the service ever since about 2008, uh, you know, there's been a there's been a um, a lack of uh, commitment from TransLink to um, keep up with the demand with an aging population. Um, yeah, and this is this is the latest installment in the in the saga. Uh, we often hear uh, that uh, people who call TransLink or book, uh, book the handy dart through TransLink, that uh, they will be taken somewhere by a taxi instead. What is the issue there as far as if, if a taxi is able to take somebody, is that still considered maybe not, not the level of service that somebody is requiring? Yeah, um, there's a there's a real problem with taxi service. Um, taxi drivers aren't, um, they're not trained. Uh, to do this kind of work. They didn't sign up to do this kind of work where they're dealing with um, people often with multiple um, uh, disabilities. And the safety standards, the quality of service just isn't, uh, it just isn't as good as it is with the uh, well-trained handy dart drivers. And um, the and TransLink recognized this. They said they wanted to limit the number of taxi trips to 7% um, uh, because they recognized these, these safety and uh, quality of service problems. And now it's at 21% where it was last year. Hmm. And, and would that include people, say, if you use a wheelchair to, to get around, would that include even if, say, TransLink or HandyDart was sending an accessible cab in that scenario? Yeah, they don't do that very much, um, but yes, that's that's included in numbers, and you know that is one of the the, the situations that people uh, who ride handy dart are complain about is that quite often their their wheelchairs are not properly secured in those uh, taxis. I know your report also, and you touched on this, but it shows that the operation Handy Dart itself has been has had been in the hands of four different corporations just in the last few years. Uh, is that adding to this as well? Like you're saying, if if companies aren't able to attract and and retain workers, I would think that going uh, changing hands isn't helping that. Yeah, uh, nobody wants to work in a chaotic situation where the the senior management is is changing uh, that frequently it, it really um, it's really disruptive to um, people's work life and uh, yeah if, if you want to attract workers these days one of the things that people are looking at is uh, stability and these private corporations have shown that they they can't because they're um, 
uh, you know, they've been sell- flipping these contracts basically back and forth between different corporate entities. So what do you see happening or what would you like to see in that we know that TransLink has a plan that goes all the way, I think, to 2050. Uh, Handy Dart certainly is, is part of the service that's offered. What do you think needs to be done or needs to be addressed right away? Yeah, I, I think that the first thing is to um, make a, like a balanced examination of bringing HandyDart in-house. That'd be TransLink operating HandyDart directly as a, as a division of, um, of TransLink. And, um, you know, they, TransLink is saying that they, they're aiming for access for everyone. And they can't do that if they can't attract workers to, do the, to operate HandyDart. Would that potentially, though, add a lot to the cost of running the service? It probably wouldn't add anything to the cost of providing the service. Uh, these corporations, um, they take a, a, a healthy uh, percentage of the, the cost um, to support their their uh, head offices, wherever they are in the United States or in uh, the UK. Um, and they, it adds an extra layer of management. Uh, what it would be doing would be putting more money into the, the pockets of people who live and work in Metro Vancouver and less of the money would be heading off to headquarters in other, um, in other countries. All right. Well, interesting findings in this report. Eric, we'll leave it there. But thanks for your time today. Thank you very much. Earlier this week, we listened to a little bit of federal public safety minister Marco Mendicino talking about an update when it comes to gun control in this country and what the federal government says it's doing to reduce the number of guns on the streets in this country, to reduce the number of so-called assault-style guns as well, but not a lot of substance to the announcement. And joining me now to talk a bit more about that is Matt Gurney. He is the co-founder of TheLine.ca. Matt, thanks so much for taking a bit of time this afternoon. I was just joking with Ben. I'm stuck in Toronto <laughs> afternoon traffic. You've got me as long as you want me. i got no, nothing else to do and nowhere to be. Excellent. I like to hear that, although I, I do feel for you being stuck in traffic. But thank you for doing this because you had a very strong response to what was actually announced from the public safety minister. Can you share those with us? Well, let me, yeah, no, happily. And, but let me just preface this by saying if you ever want to be totally disillusioned by government, Become really knowledgeable about one really particular area of government policy and then pay a ton of attention to when the government talks about that. Because over the years, over my career in journalism and even before it, I got to know the Canadian firearms laws really well. And Joe, I I won't spend too much time on this, but I got to know it really well when I was a university student because my grandfather, who was a veteran and and a hunter, he had Alzheimer's. And he decided on his own that it was the responsible thing to do to get rid of his firearms. And I was helping him do it because he was really having a hard time with the paperwork. And I, as an, at the time, as a non-gun-owning university student, I really had to get my, my head around the rules and the regulations. And I began realizing in my early 20s that they were terrible, that they didn't make sense, and that the people running the program probably were all well-intended, but they weren't very good at their jobs. And I've now spent like decades studying this file. What the minister announced this week 
you have to understand in the context of what happened in November of this year. It was when uh, the Public Order Emergency Commission was still happening. The Prime Minister was testifying. The uh, various staff ministers, uh, cabinet ministers were testifying as well. And in the middle of a, of a bill about handguns, the Liberals proposed an amendment, and I'm definitely putting that in scary air quotes, this amendment, which they surprised the Bloc and the NDP with, they hadn't been told, by itself would have been the biggest change in our firearms laws in 30 years. And there had been no prior consultation about this. There had been no discussion about this. And it ended up blowing up in the Liberals' faces because I don't even think the Liberals themselves understood what they were proposing. And I think when the minister went out in public and was trying to explain what they wanted to do, he didn't understand that that what they had proposed would radically change our gun laws and would ban thousands of, of, of kinds of hunting rifles, and there are millions of those rifles in Canada. So what the minister did this week, uh, kind of, was come out and say that they're going to stick with that plan, but it's only going to apply to rifles that are either designed or manufactured starting whenever the law is passed. And I, I don't know how to read that, because it's not really clear to me. So if a gun exists today, if it's already been designed, and Canadians are importing 10 billion of them a year for the rest of the year of our existence, does, does that is that cool? Like, are the Liberals now okay with that? And that's not really clear to me. The other wild card to me is I don't understand why they're backing off this much. Uh, their rollout in November didn't go well. They got criticized. The NDP was mad at them. Uh, Indigenous Canadians were mad at them. It didn't go well. But I still can't tell you why they are retreating this much. What they announced this week is about as dramatic a withdrawal as I ever could have imagined this government making. Could it be, like you said, that somebody is making up these rules or, or putting these amendments and, and trying to find a way to do this to respond to that criticism, but again, somebody that doesn't really understand? Because we saw that as well when they first came out and said, oh, no, don't worry, this isn't going to impact anybody who hunts, This isn't that, that's not who we're going after, when clearly they had no idea that that was going to be part of that amendment. I guess that's possible. Um, see, this is me being like cynical, but you have to forgive me. I've been doing this for two decades now. The cynicism has comes to me naturally. I, I don't understand in a very basic way why they just didn't do nothing. And I know that sounds weird, but look, this blew up in their face in, in November, December. We're only really about a month or two away from the parliamentary summer break. There's got, it's not like there's not other stuff happening in the news right now that they could have been focused on. They didn't really need to do anything on this file right now. And what they came up with, as I'm sure you saw, it hasn't pleased anybody. Like, it's never going to satisfy uh, those who are opposed to more gun control laws. And it certainly has not satisfied um, the, the gun control lobby in this country. To me, it's kind of baffling. And... I honestly wish I could give you a better answer of kind of what they're doing or why they're doing it, but I really don't understand what the point of this is. You probably saw the press conference. Minister Mendocino was absolutely lambasted by gun control advocates who once upon a time would have been happy to share a podium with him.
Does it does it remind you a bit also? And I think it was you who made this point when they announced uh, several months ago when they announced there was going to be a freeze on handguns in this country, and uh, that would be it. Uh, the ones that were out there could be out there. There wouldn't be any any new sales or transfers of handguns. And and I do think it was you that that made this point. It, it seemed bizarre then as well because that was basically the Liberal government saying we've reached the perfect number in this country. How Having this amount isn't dangerous. If we had one more, that would be very, very bad. So since we've reached that perfect number, we'll let it be. It, it didn't make any sense at all. No, I, yeah, you're, you're, it was me, and I described it as the Goldilocks solution. It's like, well, you know, we could have too few handguns. We could have too many handguns. But right now, we've got the just right number. No, you're right. It's completely absurd. It's like, well, having achieved optimal a number of handguns. We're not going to let in one more, but there's also no benefit to having one fewer. Like, it, it doesn't make any sense at all. And the, the argument that has been made to me is, well, okay, but it, like, it, it's, it's a problem that's going to phase itself out over time, right? Like, a generation or two from now, all the current owners will have passed away, and the problem will be solved. Jill, the entire justification for this, apparently, is public safety. Right, because people are getting murdered. Like you have to look at the liberals' rhetoric here. It's right, gun crime in our communities, children are being killed, school shootings and gang crime, and that is why we're going to fix this problem in two generations. Like it, what they're proposing simply doesn't match the rhetoric they use, and the, the incredible thing is they really haven't changed the rhetoric but they've been gradually watering down the proposals here. There's just no way to look at what they're actually proposing and take them seriously. Like, if they actually meant what they said about public safety and saving lives, they have the executive authority to do all the things they're proposing to do. It would be controversial. People would be mad at them. But they could have a cabinet ordering council, and they could have it by tomorrow. They don't, and they haven't. And they've been in government for eight years right now, at a certain point, we have to look to their actions and not to their rhetoric. And does it point to, and again, uh, it's fine to be cynical, I think, especially when looking at this file, but is this not appealing to more urban voters that would support this, maybe without, I mean, I, I, and I would agree with you, I, th I think if you haven't been in some scenario like you described, or if you're somebody like me who has a gun license and knows what it takes to go through the process of getting that and being a responsible owner, if you haven't done that, you probably haven't taken the time to read up and to educate yourself on the all of the minutia of the gun laws, because why would you? So are, are they banking on the fact that people aren't doing that, but they're still trying to appeal to people and look like they're doing something? That, I mean, 100%. That, like, that is exactly it, I think, up until late last year. I, I think that explains everything they've done from the time they were elected in their big sunny ways election right up until when they tried to sneak in this amendment in November when no one was looking. Nothing they've really done since then, though, has made sense. I have a theory. It's a guess. I can't prove it. But I have a theory that they have taken the proverbial too many trips to the well, where, you know, th like in December, November, they went back, they tried one more move on gun control, and they discovered, probably to their shock and horror, that for the first time, the drawbacks outweighed the benefits where it, there's just not enough voters left who are going to care about this, right? Like anyone who's primarily a gun control voter, particularly in the 905 area where they really need to be worried, 
they probably are voting liberal already. There's just no added benefit to them there. And I think that might explain some of what we're seeing right now, because one of the other things they've said they want to do is they want to create an independent committee that will make all these decisions going forward. Independent committees are where political accountability in this country goes to die. But it's also where you put hot button issues you don't want to deal with. And for the last eight years, they have loved to have press conferences about this issue. All of a sudden, it's going to be left up to an independent committee. The only possible explanation that makes sense to me is that their poll numbers suddenly suck. And you mentioned this as well, and, and they constantly uh, say that this is in uh, for public safety, this is to help, and, and for anybody that's been uh, in cities like Vancouver, like Toronto, where we've seen uh, gun crime, where we've seen shootings, uh, I think it's it's almost a bit offensive. I mean, twice I've heard the public safety minister in Vancouver, when they trot out cases that had nothing to do with, with the guns that could, would be part of this, uh, in one scenario, uh, he got the name of the victim wrong. In another scenario, the details, that one might have been the Prime Minister, it was the details. He talked about somebody uh, being hit with a stray bullet. That was not what happened in that scenario. Uh, is it not a little bit much that they keep trotting this out in the name of public safety when really this is nothing to do with public safety? I, I think that is exactly correct. I think you are 100% right about that. But I, I hate to say this, but they don't need to be right in the facts if it helps them with those uh, female voters in the 905. One of my conservative friends, I asked him just a few days ago, I said, why do you think they're backing away on this one? And he says, at a certain point, it just looks stupid saying the same thing over and over. And if there's no extra votes for them there, if there's no extra fundraising for them there, they might have to kind of just accept. You know, when we tried this last time, we got burned and that had never happened before, maybe we should just leave this one alone for a while. And maybe it works again in a, in a couple of months or a couple of years. But no, Jill, I'm with you all the way. You know, you talk to any cop in Toronto, and I'm sure it's the same for you in Vancouver, they have a pretty good idea what the problem actually is. Guys like you and me never come up in that conversation. Shooting clubs and pistol galleries never come up in that conversation. Hunters never come up in that conversation. The overwhelming majority of gun violence in this country is committed by a few hundred gang members. Thousands, millions, actually, of law-abiding Canadians are a convenient political shield for people who don't want to deal with that problem. All right. Well, Matt, I appreciate you coming on the show today. Hopefully the traffic gets moving sooner rather than later. Uh, thanks so much. and We'll talk to you again soon. <laughs> Take care. Anytime. <laughs>